Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the Appen Limited FI21 Full Year Results Conference Call. All participants are in a listen-only mode. There will be a presentation followed by a question and answer session. If you wish to ask a question, you will need to press the star key followed by number one on your telephone keypad. I would now like to hand the conference over to Mr. Mark Bryan, Chief Executive Officer. Thank you and over to you, sir. Thank you very much and, uh, and hello, everybody. Welcome to the call for our full year results for 2021. I hope you're all doing well and uh, possibly back in your offices as uh, we get to used to living with COVID. Um, I'm traveling regularly once again and I'm pleased to be able to spend time with our customers, partners and staff in our offices uh, all around the world. So life returning to some sort of normal. Uh, my name is Mark Brayen. I'm the Chief Executive. I'm joined today by our Chief Financial Officer, Kevin Levine, and our Head of IR, Rosalie Duff. Uh, the presentation was loaded to the ASX website this morning. I'll be referring to that throughout. Uh, the presentation will take 30 to 40 minutes and then we'll open it for questions. And we aim to finish at 12 noon Sydney time. Uh, as a reminder, before we get going, all the financials are in US dollars. This year's presentation is a little richer than prior years. It includes an update on our market, an overview of our business, and importantly, the outcomes of our growth strategy review that we undertook last year, and of course, the financial results. So to page five to start. Our vision is to make AI in the real world, work in the real world. And AI relies on training data, and it needs high-quality data to perform well. We aim to be the number one provider of data for the AI lifecycle, and by doing so, we'll help our customers build high-quality and responsible AI. We're a full-service provider. Our products cover the data-heavy data steps of the AI lifecycle, data sourcing, data preparation, and model evaluation. We deliver our products with a combination of our tech platform, our expertise, and our crowd. We're pleased to announce record revenue of 447 million US dollars this year, an EBITDA of 78.9 million, and that's before the impact of foreign exchange. We've grown revenue at 40% per annum over the last five years, which is an extraordinary achievement and a credit to our talented team. We delivered into the second half skew that we forecast at the first half. This was underpinned by a 32% half-on-half increase in global services revenue. Uh, this is revenue we derived from providing crowd services to our large tech customers. Uh, the sharp uptick in this revenue returns it to its year-on-year -year growth trajectory and shows the health of our customers. We're also doing very well in China, with revenue up 422% on last year, on the back of strong sales to the tech giants, autonomous vehicle, and mobile sectors. We count the world's most advanced companies amongst our customers. Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and others have relied on the many modalities of high-quality data uh, that we provide them for many years. Some of the world's best-known products are powered by our training data. This is a tremendous achievement for an Australian company and, and one that we're very proud of. To page six now, and our non-financial impact. 
our global crowd of over 1 million contributors is essential for our business and the data that we provide for our customers. It's also a responsibility. We are a member of the Global Impact Sourcing Coalition that creates opportunities for people in developing countries. Our recent crowd survey told us that 17% of respondents were long-term unemployed before they found work with us, and 16% lived under the poverty line prior to working with us. And 63%, almost two-thirds, used the money they, they earned from us to support their households or their education. We're supported by our talented global and diverse team of linguists, engineers, data scientists, project managers, and other professionals. This talent and diversity helps us deliver unbiased data for our customers. We've also increased female representation at senior management and board levels this year to 38% and 50% respectively. Our business has a low environmental footprint, but we're committed to reducing it nonetheless. We've completed an inventory of our scope one and two emissions and will be net zero by 2030. Page seven brings the impact of our work to life. We worked with one of our customers to ensure that their language generator was inclusive, unbiased, and that it worked for everyone. We did this by using a diverse team of contributors from our global crowd. They were from different cultures, ethnicities, genders, ages, and they tested the product and they provided the test data for our customer to tune the product so they would ensure that it worked in the real world for everyone. Now, we've all heard horror stories of AI that behaves badly, so we're very pleased to be working with our customers to ensure that their AI works well for all of their users. To page, eight, page nine and, and the AI market. A recent survey by PwC showed that not only was the use of AI becoming more pervasive and, and mainstream, Half of the companies they surveyed had accelerated their AI plans because of COVID. This is due to many reasons, including the need to alleviate staff shortages. Some of our customers are building chatbots for customer service as their customers and the need to look after them runs ahead of their ability to attract and train staff. The growth in AI is driving the need for training data, as you can see from the chart on page 10. This chart from research firm Cognolytica is very important. It's some of the first comprehensive research on training data. We're often asked if techniques such as self-supervised learning will make training data redundant. Our view has always been that the need for training data will continue to grow alongside the emergence of new technologies. And this research confirms that. The chart shows the growth of different training data delivery models. Full service, where the vendor provides the technology, crowd labor, and project manager management to deliver the required training data. Labor only, where a vendor uses a third-party platform or customer technology and provides the crowd or, or BPO labor, um, BPO business process outsourcing. Non-managed crowd, where the vendor provides the technology and access to a crowd but doesn't manage the process for its customers. Labeling tools, where the vendor just sells the tech platform and supports the customer on that platform, but doesn't provide the crowd or the project management. And finally, synthetic data, uh, which is an emerging but important area to watch, where data is fully synthesized and comes complete with labels. Now, we are a full-service vendor, and we participate in the majority of these delivering models to, vary de to varying degrees. We, we provide fully managed service as well as labor only using our customer platforms. 
And we also have customers that use our platform and access our cloud without our management or support. Now on the right hand side of the page, you can see the customer needs are evolving, but we hear many of the same themes um, year on year. Firstly, that scale and quality are important. The latter quality is particularly important. Poor training data leads to poor AI. Uh, now, synthetic data will play a role, but the nuance and the specificity and the quality requirements of training data see a continued reliance on humans, as you can see from the chart on the left. Plus, not every stage of the data lifecycle can be automated or synthesized, as we'll see in a few slides. Uh, an area that's been with us for a while, but it is emerging in its, uh, or increasing, sorry, in its importance is trust and privacy. Data privacy, ownership, governance, providence are all emerging as must-haves for anybody dealing with, with data. Another thing we learned this year is that because AI is experimental in its nature, you don't know the outcome until you build it. Our full-service customers need to be agile and, and they're reluctant to commit to data volumes or annual spend. So we're putting our customer needs ahead of us, ahead of ours, and hence committed revenue is not a focus for us and, and we won't report on it henceforth. We support all of these customer needs and requirements very well, and we are the market leader as the chart on page 11 shows. We are close to double the revenue of our nearest competitor and many times larger than the others. We've achieved this position through a close alignment with our customers and their needs. We're trusted to deliver and to look after our customers' data. We maintain our reputation for high quality data and our platform people and crowd combine to support our customers' needs for usability, scale and speed. Our 25 years of experience give us depth and unparalleled expertise. We maintain a strong position against our competitors. We have capacity and scale that better the biggest players. Sorry, over the page, uh, pardon me, to the competitor grid. We maintain our position against our competitors. We have the capacity and scale that betters the biggest players and the breadth of technology that keeps us ahead of the tech forward competitors. Both of these elements, capacity and technology, are necessary in our market, and the depth of our capabilities is an effective moat vis-a-vis our competitors. To page 14 in our business on a page. We are and will continue to be the number one provider of data for the AI lifecycle. We provide what our customers need, the trust, the quality, usability, scale, and speed. Our products support the data-heavy stages of the AI lifecycle. We collect and originate training data for our customers in many ways and in many data modalities. We've done this for years and we continue to enhance our capabilities, for example, with the recent acquisition of Quadrant and our ability now to collect point of interest data. We're also working on some synthetic data. It's early, but this will play a role. We prepare data for ingestion and models by labeling and or organizing it subject to the requirements of the use case. We do this with our crowd and using machine learning to automate these processes to improve our scale, quality, speed, and the value we provide to our customers. We leave the model training, that is the development of the model and deployment to others. Building models is compute heavy and that's not our core competence. There are others that are far more expert than us. 
So we're building partnerships with them to be part of their ecosystem and to help them support their customers. Finally, we provide essential evaluation and testing service. Much of the relevance we do, much of the relevance work we do falls into this category. We provide specific crowd cohorts that respond to the demographic needs of our customers in order to test their search and social media applications at scale. We deliver our products with a combination of our technology platform, our crowd, and our expertise. All are essential and the extent of each varies depending upon the project and the use case. And we cater for all data modalities from text, image, audio, video, three-dimensional LIDAR, multimodal data, and point of interest. Our ability to cover all of the data-heavy stages of the AI lifecycle, all customer requirements, all delivery modes, and all data types make us a truly unique and powerful full-service partner for our customers. We invested in a refresh of our growth strategy last year, and I'd like to take you through that now if you could turn to page 16. Our growth strategy has four core pillars. We'll continue to grow our revenue and diversify our customer base. We have five customer-facing business units to ensure a focus on our customers, as well as growth outside of our large global uh, customers. Our BUs, global, supporting the five tech giants, enterprise, uh, who support commercial customers in the US, Europe, and Asia Pacific, China, government, and quadrant, are all highly focused on their customers and have the resources they need to win and deliver in their markets. The next pillar is automation, and we're seeing early success in our efforts to automate crowd and labeling processes. We'll continue to rely heavily on the crowd, of which more later, but our automation will reduce the cost of the crowd and enhance the speed, scale, quality, and value of the data that we provide for our customers. Our data science team is an important enabler of our automation strategy. We're expanding our product offerings. We, we want to be a one-stop shop for training data needs. So the more use cases we cover, the less reasons our customers have to go to our competitors. We have a point of interest data, and we're exploring synthetic data. We'll continue to invest in product and engineering to enable this expansion. We're also working to evolve and transform our internal processes. And we're investing, or we have invested, in a transformation office to enable this change. We have many complex and manual processes, such as recruiting our many crowd workers, and we're working to streamline these to improve the service that we offer to our customers in crowd and enable our teams to focus on higher order work. Implementing this strategy is a journey. So we've set ourselves three long-term five-year goals. The first is to grow and at least double last year's revenue by 2026. Secondly, to diversify. We want to have more than one-third of our revenue from our non-global customers, that is customers outside of the five US tech giants. And of course, we're a profitable, uh, profitable business and we'll maintain that and have set ourselves an EBITDA target, a margin target of 20% by 2026. It is a journey, but we're on our way, and you can see some progress on page 17. To support the growth pillar, we expanded operations in China in 2021, hired a new leadership team for enterprise headed by Jen Cold, and hired Sajapa Sakaraju as our head of product. 
Jen and Sajatha are highly skilled and impressive executives and have made an immediate impact. Their bios are on our website. For our automate pillar, we've pulled together a world-class data science team and they've developed models to automate speech data preparation. We're active on customer projects with these models. We'll deliver these projects, improve the models, and move on to the next project and the next use case. We've added new products this year, point of interest data via the Quadrant acquisition, and we've had great success with our autonomous vehicle products in China, of which more later. Finally, we've built our transformation team, headed by Eric de Cavagnac, who's an experienced change executive. He and his team are deep into the process analysis and improvement stage of that transformation project. We lay out some of the 2022 steps and investments on the page as well, all of which contribute to the goals on the right. And we'll update this slide as we progress along the journey. We'll now dive a little deeper into some elements of the strategy, starting with automation on page 18. As a full service provider, we need our crowd, our expertise and our technology in different measures across the AI lifecycle. This chart shows the relative human involvement and automation potential of the different stages. Data collection, for example, is, is highly manual. You need humans to speak into their phones if you're collecting speech data, or to take photos of buildings if you're collecting point of interest data in the field. Now, steps can be automated for efficiency, but humans are essential. Uh, as they are for model evaluation and, and relevance, which is on the right-hand side of the chart. Contrast this, for example, with synthetic data. This is compute-intensive and highly automatable. Humans play a limited role. So automation is important, uh, and we're investing to deliver its benefits for our customers. But not all elements of the AI lifecycle can be automated to the same extent. So our crowd and those related capabilities give us an effective mode against competitors in these areas. Relevance, the bulk of our revenue is crowd dependent and hence the risk of disruption by automation is very low to non-existent. Stage 19 highlights one of our new products. We're having great success in China in the autonomous vehicle market. Autonomous vehicles require vast amounts of training data. And we're working with 11 auto companies in China, as well as over 20 other tech companies, such as drone providers, who are investing in autonomous mobility. Slide 20 highlights point of interest data. Point of interest, or POI, is important to keep maps up to date, especially now given COVID. For example, small businesses that have closed may still appear open on the maps, uh, and it's important that that's all updated. The Quadrant product enables very efficient collection of point of interest data, and the data supports mapping, e-commerce, and marketing applications. There's also an interesting intersection between point of interest or geolocational data and augmented reality. I'm sure there'll be apps in the future that detect where you are and automatically provide directions or translations and other information via wearable devices like glasses. Uh, it's a pretty interesting area of technology and one that we're glad to be part of. Let's turn now to the financial performance, starting on page 22 uh, and an outline of our reporting segments. So we have two reporting segments and five customer-facing business units. And the reporting segments reflect 
our, our product-led strategy. So for example, we have global services, which are the services that we provide the leading US tech companies on their platforms. And we have new markets, which is all the customers that we support, including some of our global services projects on our platform, on our technology. Our five customer-facing units include Global, which are the five largest US tech companies, Enterprise, which cover other companies in North America, EMEA and um, Asia-Pacific, Government, uh, federal agencies, China, which now encompasses China, Japan and Korea, and Quadrant, the provider of location data. So over to page 23 in the financial highlights. So we had another record full year revenue performance. Uh, revenue was up to 447.3 million US dollars and that was up 8% on last year. Key drivers were a sharp uptick in global service, services revenue in the second half. That grew 32% on the first half of FY21. New markets revenue was also up sharply, 21% to 102.5 million. And that was driven by a very high increase in revenue in China. Underlying EBITDA before foreign exchange grew 12% to 78.9 million. And that was driven by the revenue growth and some gross margin expansion in the second half. We maintain a strong balance sheet, 48 million in cash and no debt as of the 31st of December 21. And we're pleased to provide a final dividend of five and a half cents per share. And the total dividend is flat on 2021. So digging into the segments now to page 24 in global services. So the chart on the right shows the uptick in global services revenue from the first half and the second half. And that came on the back of uh, a number of the expansion of existing projects and a number of new projects in the second half. And this was consistent with the skew that we called out at the first half, at our first half results. Uh, overall, revenue was up 5% to 344.7 million and EBITDA up 3% to 91.2 million. To our next segment of new markets, and you can see sharp year-on-year -year growth of 21% to 102.5 million and a pleasing half-on-half -half trend. Uh, China played a big role in this growth, as we'll see in later slides. Over the page to page 26 and the global customers. So global revenue overall was up 3.4% to 386.3 million. And you can see again that return to growth in the second half on the right-hand side. Importantly, you can also see the percentage of projects that uh, our customers are working on, or sorry, the percentage of projects that we're working on with our customers that are not related to ad products continues to climb. This is very important and shows that our customers are investing in AI products outside of advertising. To page 27, just a little bit on the digital advertising market, which is important. First of all, the advertising market, which underpins a lot of the revenue of our biggest customers, continues to grow. Very healthy upward trend for digital ad spending worldwide. It is a dynamic market. 
as you're all aware, there are many changes in the market, including, for example, the recent change to the IOS uh, operating system that impacts the data that um, search and social media companies can collect from Apple phones. What this means, the combination of, of those dynamics and the chart on the left, mean that the spend is still happening, but it's shifting between, between vendors. What it also means is that the um, major search and social media customers, companies, of which many are our customers, are working hard to solve this problem to return to those highly personalized ads. The impact of these trends on us is, is threefold. First of all, we're working with our customers um, to build products that are not related to ads, which is to our advantage. We also work across many of these companies, both in the US and China. So as ad spend, which is growing, shifts from one to the other, then that can be advantageous to us as well. Uh, and finally, as our customers look to solve this problem, it may provide opportunities for us as they seek new sources of data to create highly personal ads. Over the page now to page 28 and our other BU's, Enterprise China Government Quadrant. So strong growth, um, 21 revenue of 60.8 million, up 55% on FY20. This was a lot to do with success in China, but the other business units played their part. And you can see on the right-hand side, tremendous growth in, in those business units and very important for us to improve the amount of diversity that we have in our customer base and the, the revenue that we derive from these customers is now 14% of our total revenue, which is up from 9% last year. Over the page, page 29, and the chart, as you can see on the left-hand side, quarter-on-quarter -quarter revenue in China is growing extremely healthy. Our customers include the tech giants, uh, social media companies, mobile providers, and autonomous vehicle companies. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have 11 of the leading AV companies or autonomous vehicle companies as our customers. And we have more than 20 other tech companies such as drones and robotics that are using our data for autonomous mobility. Now, the China operation is highly focused on growth. That includes growing projects with existing customers as well as new customer acquisition. Uh, and we are on track to be the market leader in China. So we're really pleased with progress there and we see um, uh, further growth, further high growth in China. To page 30 and an update on our other business units. Um, the enterprise team had a solid year, but yet to fully reach their potential. They're winning a lot of projects and winning a lot of customers. And of course we have a new leadership team there, highly focused on, on accelerating growth. Our government team was successful recently in being, being selected in a partnership for the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center Blanket Purchase Agreement to support um, AI, the development of AI capabilities. Uh, that positions us to win projects with a number of agencies. And Quadrant is integrating with the business and winning work with the app and customer base, including many projects or a number of live projects with some of our largest customers. I'll now hand it over to Kevin for page 31 to take through the rest of the financials. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Um, so onto, on slide 31, 
Our revenue and other income increased 8% to $447.3 million. This reflects a strong half-on-half performance, with the second half up 28% on the first half, reversing the first half decline of 2%, and that's comparing to the prior corresponding period. There were two major drivers for the record second half performance. Firstly, global services, which delivered a significant turnaround from the first half revenue reduction of 9%, with second half revenue up 19% versus the prior corresponding period, and up 32% on the first half of FY21. This record second half revenue performance was driven by continued increase in non-ads, and with ad-related projects returning to growth as forecast. This highlights the value that our global customers place in our ability to deliver high-quality data at scale across all data modalities. The second driver was China, with 422% growth coming from both increases in market share, i.e. from new customers, as well as in customer share, i.e. expansion from existing customers in new and existing projects. Underlying EBITDA, excluding an FX loss of 1.2 million, increased 12% to 78.9 million. This result and the associated margin was positively impacted by strong second half drivers, namely revenue growth, gross margin expansion, and moderate expense increase to support the growth. Underlying NPAT reduced 10%, impacted by increased amortization of product development investment. The effective tax rate of 20.5% is in line with the prior year. The effective tax rate is subject to fluctuations from the tax effect of movements from expensing, investing of employee performance shares and differences in overseas tax rates. Excluding these fluctuations, we have reduced the normalized tax rate to 25%. Over the page on two, the balance sheet on slide 32. Balance sheet remains strong and resilient with no debt. Trade receivables increased by 38.6 million to 89.2 million increase in trading volumes approaching year-end. Invoices were raised on 30 December for work completed in December as the milestones were satisfied. This resulted in levels and a corresponding decrease in contract assets. Non-current assets comprise mainly goodwill and identifiable intangible assets, mostly arising through acquisition. Following a detailed impairment review, we report adequate headroom in the carrying value of these intangibles. Non-current assets increased mainly due to 45.4 million being recognized as goodwill relating to the quadrant acquisition. Total liabilities increased by 19.1 million to 107 million, mainly due to the earnout liability of 18.4 million associated with the quadrant acquisition. A final dividend of five and a half Australian cents per share has been declared. This is in line with last year and is 50% franked. This takes the full year dividend to 10 Australian cents per share in line with FY20. Over the page onto slide 33. 
In 2021, we invested 30.2 million in product development, representing 6.8% of revenue. This focus is important to drive customer growth and repeatability, as well as quality improvements and margin expansion. Since FY19, we have strategically invested in engineering resources to develop new products. 68% of our product spend was capitalized in FY21, up from 64% in the prior year, reflecting our commitment to development of new products and tools. We will continue to invest in product development of up to 10% of annual revenue. Uh, moving on to slide 34 on the cash flow. The cash on hand at year end decreased by 12.6 million. However, this was due to the upfront payment for Quadrant of 25.3 million. Cash balance and cash conversion were impacted by timing issues, primarily due to the working capital cycle impact from the higher volumes in November and December. Cash flow from operations reduced by 17.9 million due to the aforementioned working capital cycle impact. However, this was somewhat offset by lower tax payments. Cash has been effectively deployed for product development, tax, dividends, OPEX, and growth investments. Notwithstanding the cash flow cycle impact, the cash flow conversion from EBITDA was still solid at 77%. Um, thank you, and I'll hand you back to Mark. Thank you very much, Kevin. So to conclude and to move now to page 35, we're very pleased with our performance in 2021. Uh, we also refreshed our growth strategy to transform the business with a focus on revenue growth, customer diversification, automation, and product expansion. Implementing this strategy is a journey, so we're taking a long-term view and we've set ourselves five-year targets as our North Stars. Those targets are to at least double our FY21 revenue by 2026. This demonstrates our focus on, on long-term revenue growth. Uh, we're off to a good start. Our revenue order book for this year, which includes year-to-date revenue plus orders in hand, stands at 190 million US dollars. We also expect the FY22 half-on-half revenue skew to be similar to prior years, excluding uh, FY20. The second target is to improve the mix of customers with one-third of revenue from our non-global customers, that is one-third of revenue from customers other than the five US tech giants. And we'll achieve this with investments for growth in new products, sales and marketing partnerships, we'll explore M&A opportunities, and we're targeting higher than 35% compound annual growth revenue from non-global customers. And this is in line with the, the market growth rate of the chart earlier in the deck. Finally, we are a profitable business and we'll maintain that. We set ourselves a long-term goal of 20% EBITDA margins. But our focus on revenue may impact near-term EBITDA margins and future dividend payout ratios. This long-term focus also means that we will no longer provide short-term EBITDA guidance. A few things, higher costs in the first half of 22, including the transformation office, investment in product and technology, and share-based payment expenses uh, will impact first half earnings this year. 
and there'll be an earnings skew to the second half, which could be larger when compared to FY21. In closing, I'd like to thank our customers for their support, and especially to thank all of our talented and, and hardworking teammates around the world. We appreciate everything they do for us. This result is theirs, and I'd like to thank them. And now I'll hand it back to the moderator to take time for questions. Thanks very much. Thank you. If you wish to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone and wait for your name to be announced. If you wish to cancel your request, please press star 2. If you are on a speakerphone, please pick up the headset to ask your question. Your first question comes from Josh Kanorokis with Baron Joey. Please go ahead. Hi, Mark and Kevin. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Hey, Josh. How you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you. Good. Um, just first question, just with regard to, you know, some of your core customers, you mentioned that the non-ad related projects obviously saw some good growth in the period and that was sort of on a project basis. Would you be able to give a bit more context on how that's come through on a revenue basis and just how, I guess, you know, your, your comfort sort of, I guess, in the future outlook of some of those non-ad related projects? Sorry, that um, that the line on page twenty six that gets to seventy seven percent that's revenue. Okay, so the, the non ads revenue is seventy seven percent. Sorry if I um, I misspoke. Yep, no, that's fine. And, and so I guess in terms of those projects, though, in terms of because obviously they're still at early stages, um, is it too early also for you to say in terms of the potential materiality, you know, long term from those projects? Yeah, hard on a project-by-project project basis, but, you know, some of them are to do with um, augmented and virtual reality, for example, which, which we know is a growth focus for, for some of our customers. So it's hard to know how any individual project will play out, but they're, they're, they're in areas that are growth focus for the customers. Another one is e-commerce, another growth area. Another, another area is mapping. So um, these are all in forward-looking uh, areas, but hard to tell um, how how an individual project may play out at this point. Got it. And I guess some of our industry feedback has suggested data collection works have, you know, been quite a, a significant part of the market or a growing part of the market. Um, would you be able to comment on, you know, I guess how you've sort of seen those trends there and, you know, Appen's ability to capture share of that market on a go-forward basis? We have seen an uptick in data collection and it is a competence of the business with our crowd-based model because, uh, as I explained earlier in the presentation, you know, a lot of the data collection needs needs humans. Um, hence also the acquisition of Quadrant, which also goes to, to data collection. So, yeah, I agree with the industry feedback you're getting. It's very important and uh, and we're very much in the, in the thick of that. The, the reason why – sorry, just add one more thing. The reason why data collection is important is because – the, the best performing AI is typically narrow AI, something that does a very specific task. So correspondingly, you need um, data that's representative of that use case. Now, not all the data may be available um, from, from current sources or by, by the customer. So if they need a specific piece of AI that needs specific data, they have to go find that data and collect it, and, and that's what we're doing. So, uh, yeah, 
Got it. And just final question. I'm sure there'll be a few around margin, so I won't spend too much time on it. But um, in terms of, I guess, your longer-term commitment versus the shorter-term investment, should we be thinking about some of these shorter-term investments as transitory in nature or uh, or more, more in terms of a step change uh, in terms of how the business needs to operate and the costs it needs to uh, put in to you know, fulfil those growth objectives? Yeah, so I, I think in the um, sort of the what we foresee immediately is is more incremental, but we just need the flexibility to make those investments as and when they come up. Um, it could be, for example, um, lighting up a team of people to you know, build a particular model to automate part of the business. So um, you know, we don't foresee any step change um, type investments in the near term, but it's not to say they may not, may not come along, but it's more likely to be sort of incremental at this point. Got it. So is there any way or any comments you can make in terms of how you're thinking about, I guess, you know, obviously you talked it's going to be below 20, but is there any numbers you're sort of comfortable talking about it being above in the period or on a go-forward basis to give people a bit of comfort? Yeah, we, we, we wouldn't want the percentages to, to go backwards. Um, you know, the, the objective is to is to keep going forward um, with a long-term view of getting to that getting to that 20% target. Okay, that's great context. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, sorry, Josh, if I can just add to that as well. And that is, yeah, thank you. Yeah, obviously we're going to manage the cost base and prioritise the spend, um, you know, to, to align with those long-term growth objectives. So, you know, around product development and expenses to support the growth. Um, and then obviously um, calling out um, in, the, in the short term, as you call that, just some impacts from from some of the investments that we make in the transformation office and things like that. But yeah, very much aligning to to the future growth and prioritising the spend in order to achieve that. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Your next question comes from Siraj Ahmed with City. Please go ahead. Thanks. Uh, hi, Mark and Kevin. Um, a few questions. Just first one, um, on the work in hand and um, conversion to revenue, um, any any change in how we should think about it? Um, last year, obviously, was uh, second half skewed because of the major customers. How is How are the discussions tracking this year? It's up 15% year on year. That's pretty good. But just keen to understand how we should think about conversion. Yeah, I think, uh, hey, Siraj, I would, um, on a full-year basis, I, I I wouldn't think any different to, to prior years. You know, there's always, you know, subtle differences year on year, but in general, I think about it um, in a similar way. Okay. And second thing, have you given six-year, uh, a five-year target of more than doubling revenue? Um, sort of, a, so just trying to understand when you think about the growth trajectory over that five years, are you expecting growth to be faster in the first few years, slower later, or is it just consistent revenue growth? Um, we, we we've obviously got a bunch of models that that get us to those to those figures, um, and um, there's there's different trajectories. I, I think the shape of the curve will depend upon the non-global customers more so than the, the globals. As you can see, 
with the China chart that that had a, a slower start and then got some got some momentum. So um, uh, I'd expect a little bit of a build, but um, probably more so from the, um, the non-global customers than the globals. Globals will be a little steadier. Sure. And actually, just just on the globals, um, again, the target sort of implies that in global growing at 7% year on year. It grew 3% this year. So just keen to understand how you're thinking about that and what gives you confidence that growth will be at around those high single digits. Yeah, we, um, you know, there are five customers in that cohort. They all have their, their own characteristics and, and challenges. And if we look at, um, you know, some of the things they faced uh, last year versus this year, uh, we're, we're pretty optimistic given the, the book of projects we've got with them um, compared to where, where we were at this point last year. Got it. That's helpful. Last one, just maybe for Kevin, um, just regarding the, the margin comment, um, just confirming that we shouldn't be expecting margins to go backwards next year. That, that's the thing. And can, would you be able to quantify the level of investment? I mean, you've given the, the uh, project office, but you also mean to take costs out. So just keen to understand you know, the level of investment that you're thinking about. <clears throat> yeah, so we, we give the guidance of up to 10% um, of any one year. In terms of for this next year, you know, probably a range of 8 to 9% um, is how we're thinking about our investment. But as to Mark's points, the, the, the key thing for us is to is to build a foundation and a pathway you know, for that future growth, and which means we may accelerate or decelerate at, at any point in time in order to do that. But within that overall framework of the 10%, probably around eight to nine for, for 22 um, in terms of how we're seeing it this year um, and then in terms of in terms of the margins obviously we have some which we've called out we've obviously got some some things going on particularly just in 22 um, when you compare to 21 obviously we've got cost of the transformation office this will give us positive benefit from only from 23 we've also when you look at the share based payment cost 22 versus 21. Um, 21 had an adjustment in their downward adjustment, so obviously expect um, you know normalised share-based payment costs coming through in 2022, um, and note the comparison you know with 21, which is going to impact things as well. So once again, these are these these aren't anything that that is really impacting us or bothering us from our long-term positioning, but just letting the market know in terms of how we're thinking or seeing things just in the immediate short term. Okay, so the earnings queue is more about those costs coming in the first half rather than the second half compared to last year. Um, that's why the earnings queue is more skewed to the second half. Yes, yes, there's, there's, there's a couple of you know comparative um, pressures you know that impact that I've called out, and obviously that impacts that skew as we've called out. Okay. Super helpful. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Your next question comes from Michael Aspinal with Jeffries. Please go ahead. Thanks. Um, good day, Mark and Kevin. Um, I might just start on the order book. I mean, Faraj kind of touched on this, but it's plus 15% year on year so far. Would you expect the first half or the full year to reflect that at the top line based on what you're seeing so far? Hey, Michael. Um, so, so we do expect um, a... Uh, 
a half-on-half -half revenue skew, as we call it there, if you look at years prior to 2020 uh, as a guide. Yeah, just thinking about the 15% though growth you've seen kind of in the first two months, call it of the year, would you expect at least the first half to say reflect that um, given, you know, it's kind of revenue already received for the first two months of the year? So this, this only includes revenue for, for, for January, to be clear. And mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question given we're calling out that half-on-half -half skew. I think that's your answer there. Yeah, I think there's two points there, Michael, to, just to take away. I mean, basically, the, the methodology here is that this is these orders are for the whole year, so you can't really draw any any necessary comparisons as to a certain period. Um, you need to, it's most representative over, over a full year period is, is the first data point, and then take the other one where we talk about the skew. So that, that will, those both of those data points will help you um, with that. Okay, so. The full year could be 15% growth, but the first half might not be. Yeah, you've got you've got the data points that help you with that skew. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like you saw a return to growth in the large legacy projects in the second half. Um, just confirming that that's right, and what drove the customers to return invest to investing in that area? Um, so there's there's. I don't know if legacy programs is the right way to put it. So there are a number of large programs um, that we support with our customers, and, and there's, there's, a, there's inbuilt seasonality in some of those programs. For example, those that deal with uh, advertising tend to pick up in the second half because of the, the retail season. Um, so I think that was sort of as, as, as the season would have it. Um, really what we saw was you know, newer projects picking up in, in the second half that were consistent with customer strategy to, um, you know, build non-adulated projects, uh, for example. So, so it was a, a blend of both, but um, I think on the, the large core programs that we support, there's, there's always a degree of seasonality there. Okay, and you showed us some numbers uh, at the half. I think it was projects started prior to calendar 21 and projects started in calendar year 21. I mean, if we just have that in the back of our minds, it sounds like we should expect those projects that started this calendar year have contributed more than what they had in the first half uh, on a proportional basis. Yeah, yeah. So we get, we get new project starts all the time, um, and sometimes they take a little while to ramp up. Sometimes they ramp up very quickly. Um, and um, yes, we had some projects start the first half that ramped up into the second, and then some that started fresh in the second half that delivered material revenue as well. Okay, yep, that's interesting. Last one for me, it's kind of a follow-up um, on Faraj's question. You mentioned that the target in 26 is for a third of revenue to be from non-global customers, which kind of implies that two-thirds will be from global customers or revenue going from 340. 340 mil odd last year to 600 mils in 26. I'm just interested in how much consultation you've had with your global customers kind of on that medium term perspective. Um, so uh, we obviously work very closely with our customers on 
you know, their, their needs. Um, and that gives us a view of the, the demand for data. Um, it's a combination of existing projects and some assumptions for, for new projects. So, yes, there's some customer input there, but there's also, um, you know, we're, we're, we're backing our ability to, um, to, to find new projects and continue to deliver into existing ones. Okay, but there is some input there from customers in terms of that kind of three, four, five year outlook. Yeah, the customers want to make sure that we have, um, you know, in addition to the, um, you know, the quality of data that we provide for them, the customers are all, all always keen to know that we've got sort of new ideas to bring to them. So we do have, you know, forward-looking conversations that inevitably go to, you know, some discussion, discussion around, you know, capacity and, and volume. Um, ha having said that, they don't lay out specifically what their requirements are um, because their businesses are very dynamic and they rely on us to be dynamic and agile to support them as, as they need to us. No, that's helpful. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Your next question comes from Xavier Waterstone with Quaestreet Asset Management. Please go ahead. Good morning, Mark and Kevin. Just a couple from me. So first one, um, positive to note that there's a clear disclosure of the development capitalization and amortization on slide 33 and 38. I'm just curious, though, um, given the enduring nature of a lot of these costs, um, especially the development spend, um, whether EBIT margin should be the focus rather than EBITDA is a better reflection of economic profitability? Yes, I'll, I'll take this one, Mark. Yeah, we certainly, we certainly consider this. What we do as well is we, we look at ourselves compared to our peers as well, and we look at those, those levels of, of uh, development as percentage of revenue. Um, and, and essentially what, what we've derived from that, from that research and comparison is that a lot of companies, um, similar type peer companies and other companies, um, all disclose on an EBITDA basis even though they have high levels of development as a percentage of revenue. So at this point in time, we would consider ourselves an outlier just going to the EBIT relative to everyone else that's on the EBITDA, but it is something uh, that we consider. But given our, our levels of spend lower than a lot of others, um, we're reflecting and we're looking to report at this level for the time being. All right, cool. And the second one was, I guess, I understand you know, the comment about no longer providing short-term guidance. It's understandable given the, the volatility of some of these revenue and contracts. Um, so the second question, I guess, is it looks like, you know, given the surprise magnitude of today's share price reaction, probably part of the reflects a bit of a lack of confidence and timeliness and continuous disclosure. Um, can the market expect anything in terms of more frequent or substantial, you know, just kind of business operational updates to help address this uh trust and information gap. I'm sorry, I was offline talking to the moderator. Could you repeat the question? The question was, I guess, you know, I understand your comment about no longer providing short-term guidance, you know, given the surprise magnitude of today's share price movement and, you know, some of that being a lack of confidence and timeliness and continuous disclosure, um, whether the market can expect anything in terms of a more frequent or substantial business updates um, to help address this information gap? 
So we've always provided um, information um, as as we've been re- required to do so, um, and and we'll continue we'll continue with that policy. And if there's anything that um, we feel is is in the interest of the shareholders, then then we'll um, we'll provide that. Okay, thanks for that. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have five minutes remaining with us. Your next question comes from Gary Sheriff with RBC. Please go ahead. Hi, Mark and Kevin. A couple of questions. First, the FY26 goals, they're looking ambitious. Does that include any acquisitions for those goals, if you could clarify for us? No, not material um, acquisitions, Gary. Understood. And um, thank you for that graph on com- the competitive landscape. It's very helpful. You, you flag after Linebridge and Scale, the next largest competitor. Who is that? And the follow-up question is, do you find any of the assets that you've flagged or companies you've flagged, do they have anything attractive that you think could be beneficial under the app and umbrella? So um, the, uh, the, the the fourth one is, is sort of a blend of information that we've We've picked up in the market. Um, there, there are some competitors in the, the tens of millions of revenue in the sort of the thirty to fifty million dollar range. So it's just a sort of a blend of people. The, the point of the chart is to show that you know Scale has put out a figure about their revenue. The others we pick up things from time to time, but they're going to be around that size. So it's not a specific company. It's just sort of representative of where the, the fourth place competitor is. Um, you know, in terms of, of other companies on the slide and do they have things that would be beneficial, um, look, we look all the time, Gary, at, um, you know, companies in the space and, and whether or not we could, um, you know, combine with them, um, bring them under the app and umbrella, as, as you say. Oftentimes, though, they're fairly early and, um, you know, loftily valued to be, to be candid. So um, you know, we just have to be have to be very uh, careful and strategic about some of the things that we look at. I'd, I'd also say that most of the things, uh, most of the companies um, on on the chart have um, you know a sort of tech forward. And when we look at the technology and the capabilities we've got, you know, there's a fair chance we can we can build it ourselves. Um, at a, at a better return for shareholders than, than buying them. Understood. Um, just going back to the um, ad-related revenue being, call it 25% group revenue, um, has there been any insights in terms of your discussions with Facebook in terms of volumes for calendar year 22 versus last year, um, given that they're clearly a, a, a big contributor to uh, your ad-related revenue? Yeah, so um, the, the the order book number is obviously inclusive of um, uh, a lot of work with our with our major customer, and uh, and I think that's probably the best answer I can I can give you there, Gary. You can draw some inference from the, the size of the order book number. Yeah, no trouble. Uh, last one on China. Maybe let us know who some of those customers are. And if you could provide us any detail on the margins, gross margin or EBITDA margin, uh, that would be um, that would be beneficial. 
Yeah, so you know, many of our customers, as, as you know, um, you know, are building future-facing products, and they're not keen for for us to talk about who they are. We've managed to get permission for a number of logos, as you can see throughout the deck. Uh, none from China, though. But I can tell you that all of the China tech giants are are our customers. Uh, I can also tell you that the major mobile uh, companies are our customers, as are the major autonomous vehicle uh, companies. And so you could probably find a, a bunch of them pretty quickly, um, just with some simple, with some searching. Um, in, in terms of Gross margins and EBITDA margins, we, we haven't disclosed those, but, but I can say that we're still investing into China. Um, and I can also say that the, the gross margins are improving. Uh, that said, the, the focus in China is is very firmly on growth, and, and you can see that that's uh, paying dividends for us. And so when you talk about um, you know some of those large Chinese tech giants, is there any reason why then you'd classify China as as being non-global in terms of when we segment them as customers. I just noticed that in terms of that non-global customer base, you, you flagged it's China as being non-global, but I would have thought some of those Chinese tech giants would be. Yeah, I guess I guess it's in the name. I mean, we our, our global customer base is the five big US giants because that's where we derive the bulk of our revenue and everything outside of that is, is non-global. Some of our customers outside of that are sizable, but just by our definition, the global is those five uh, US tech giants. I assume that's it, Gary. Yeah, sorry. Yep, <laughs> fine from me. I thought the moderator had uh, cut me off, but yes, that's that's great. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That was the last question for today. I'll now hand back to Mr. Brian for closing remarks. Yeah, thank you very much, and and thank you everybody for uh, for joining the call today. Um, as I said earlier, we are pleased with the out with our with our results this year and firmly focused on those five year goals to, to reiterate uh, to at least double our twenty one revenue by twenty twenty six to have one third of our revenue from our non global customers and as uh, per the response to, to Gary there the, the globals were the big five US tech giants to so have a third of our revenue from outside of that. And finally to continue to be a profitable company with a an EBITDA margin target of twenty percent. So thank you once again, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to meeting you um, in any one-on-one meetings that we may have. Thanks very much.